Welcome to Haven't Happened Podcast, episode 85, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. And I'm Stuart. In this episode, we talk about object-oriented programming. We talk about provisioning machines with Terraform, Ansible, and Azure DevOps. And we also talk about how to build new machines. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, welcome back. Uh, There's only three of us tonight. Uh, Jerry can't make it. We're hoping we get four of us back on, on all at once. we good. So how have, how have people been since the last time we spoke? Yeah, pretty good here. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, working hard with uh, with a few bits and pieces in work at the moment. Nothing nothing substantive to, to talk to you guys about. But um, outside of work, I have been doing quite a bit of stuff with lug.org.uk. And I'm trying to re-engineer how some of that stuff hangs together, uh, which we might come across in this call. We might not. We'll see what happens. How about you, Stu? What have you been up to? Um, so my, most of my work at the moment has been on, I think I mentioned it last time, on GitLab pipelines and, yeah, just getting some continuous integration properly going within, our, within where we are. And it's at the point we're starting to roll it out. And compared to something like Jenkins, it's actually quite easy because it's mostly written in YAML. And, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. But, uh, yeah, maybe we'll cover that in a future show because quite a lot to dig into on that one. But, yeah, it's quite quite an interesting technology to say the least. Is it the same as like I'm doing with Azure DevOps pipeline? Yeah, I, I think it pretty much is. I mean, uh, from looking at some of the Azure DevOps language, it looks actually quite similar. Um, and I've seen some of the Bitbucket ones as well. And other than some of the terms being slightly different for the most part, they almost look um, like you could copy and paste one into the other and it'd probably uh, be close to working. It's triggered by things like a, you know a commit to a git repository and things like that so you can say if something has been committed to a branch and we want to merge it into the main um, branch then at that point you can do all sorts of things like you know testing the code or you can just you know do basic things like building docker files from it you know all, all sorts of things with it and all of it's automated without um, any involvement from yourself you just watch it happen and you know actually get tested code which is something we've been missing at the moment which is starting to bring some benefits already yeah because we're using it to build vms in azure and i've managed to got terraform working with it and using it basically um hot, uh, keeping a state file in azure azure i don't know what's going on azure um the um file storage is it the blob storage yeah, blob, the... yeah basically the blob storage yeah that's it yeah so that's quite good so i, I, just, I need to start getting my head around how i can then do it for having it so that we can have one for each environment kind of thing i think i mentioned a telegram group yeah that's what i'm kind of trying to do is just have it so that we can have an our our dev our staging or testing and then our production kind of thing so we then can yeah i mean that's one of our next steps on it as well right now it's mostly for the uh the code that developers are putting together but we actually want to get there with our infrastructure as well because we're starting to get to the idea of the some of the infrastructure and things like you know a docker service is technically part of the application it's not realistically a um, infrastructure in itself the infrastructure might be what runs the docker container but the actual docker service is essentially an artifact of the um, application so if we can include the application uh, terraform with the um, application code being built we can also deploy at the same time but yeah we've um, historically been building terraform from our own machines so it's going to be quite a um, uh, big hurdle to jump at the moment i think that's kind of where we are where we are doing at the moment we're basically i've got a number of terraform scripts i've got checked into our azure 
DevOps GitHub and Windows basically just pulling them down into machines and then pushing them out. But I kind of want to get it to a stage where we're kind of trying doing it so that we have it per, uh, not per VM, but per application kind of thing. So we have an application which we can then deploy, get to a certain state, and then it will can then we can then pass over to developers to then deploy their code to it using whatever method they has kind of thing. One of the things we got in feedback and was going to mention later in the show is that we we throw some terms around without really kind of explaining what they're about. And I just I, I, I was going to go into it more later on, but uh, you've mentioned a few few terms there that I just want to quickly go into. So so Stu mentioned Jenkins. So Stu, do you want to quickly just mention what Jenkins is? Yeah. So Jenkins is a like an application suite for deploying um, applications. So you can use it for things like um, saying, I have a possibly even something as simple as a bash script and you want to deploy that somewhere you can use jenkins to say um, on an automated basis deploy this to a um, machine or you can do it to build to uh, you know docker containers you can do it to build um, things like you know the the whole serverless um, approach to things you can do it to deploy to that it's essentially a way of saying here's the stages i want to go for in deployment and i don't want to have to do that myself it basically means that jenkins can take care of that um, as part of your application and you can also hook it into other things so that when you update your code it will automatically fire things um, like that off rather than you have to manually trigger things like that and the the GitLab pipelines is almost like an alternative to Jenkins Jenkins is pretty much the main um, sort of like development automation framework out there but there's a lot of alternatives coming around now as well and uh, Al mentioned a couple of uh, another product which is Azure DevOps which is effectively if I understand correctly, and Stu, feel, uh, sorry, uh, Al, feel free to correct me on this one. Azure DevOps is basically the Azure native product that does something similar to Jenkins. Is that right, or does it do more than that? It's TFS. It's the old Team Foundation service, which, or, or what used to be on, which used to have on prem to basically build all your .NET code and stuff but they have basically added it all they made it so that it's on azure so that you can do all you still do all your your .NET code build and then obviously push it to azure but you can do a lot more with it by on-prem you mean sort of self-hosted yeah an, an application that was hosted yeah. on a server or in a data center basically yeah yes but that's where in the before azure, where you'd basically push all your code to it was a microsoft product okay and obviously, we've mentioned uh, Terraform before as being a piece of software that can deploy infrastructure as code. So you can provision environments with that. You can update databases or DNS entries and things like that. So you're using Terraform uh, with a remote state file. Yep. So that means that you're not just running it locally on a machine. You're running it from from your Azure DevOps environment. Uh, and pushing the state, the, the condition that it's finding the environment before it runs and the condition it finds itself in after it runs to a, a storage location in Azure. Is that right? Correct. Fantastic. Okay. So now that we've got that lot nailed down, <laughs> you were talking about um, Ansible. So what are you doing with Ansible then? Yeah, we would basically just Ansible to, once I've built the machine, we want to Ansible to build the VM to have the standard it's going to be so that we can then pass over to developers and can push their code to it. And then we we think we talked about Ansible Tower before. Is with that obviously Ansible you have to run it doesn't run natively on Windows, you have to run it on Linux. I'm running it on my machine on WSL. But obviously on somewhere central 
to run it from. So I think we talked about AWX a couple of episodes ago. So yeah, we're just looking at once the VM been built, we're then going to push the Ansible code or script on it so that it builds it to the desired state. Um, I think I'll mention as well, I think you haven't really idea. John, I was wondering how I get the machines from once uh, obviously how it recognizes how it, how it notices that there's new machines being built so um, part of my kind of the build of with terraform is that it it joins it to our domain and at the moment it goes into a staging folder in our active directory domain which is goes into a certain ou which is like mm-hmm. um and you were saying how i was thinking i we, I always like talking to you, uh, John. You always come, the, uh, come on, coming from a different angle. So we were talking about uh, maybe writing some a Python script that basically keeps looking inside that folder for new objects. And when mm-hmm. that new object finds it, we can then obviously add it to the correct group inside Ansible Tower to, um, yeah, then it applies the right Ansible script to it. So I've thought about that a little bit more. One of the things that, you tend to get when you're talking about stuff in a real-time fashion is that you can either miss part of the conversation or uh, you can kind of not ask about the full solution. You can just ask about one part of it. So you mentioned that when you uh, build a machine, it drops it into a into a particular OU. Uh, I hadn't realized that was the case. So let's wind things back just one more time. So we talked about Ansible as being a provisioning tool. So it runs a series of tasks on a on a machine once it's built. AWX is the open source upstream project for Ansible Tower. Ansible Tower is a scheduling and automation engine for Ansible. So you can ask it to run playbooks on your behalf. Uh, and one of the things it will also do is abstract secrets away. So you're not required to run an Ansible playbook knowing the credentials to log into a box, knowing the the way that you build something. But one of the things that Ansible Tower can do, uh, and Ansible can as well for that matter, but Ansible Tower can be used to, you can have a thing called a dynamic inventory. So I've used Ansible Tower in the past to ask Azure the, the virtual machine list in Azure for a list of all the hosts that are in there, whether they're tagged with certain things or built in certain regions, built to certain with certain VM images and things like that. I've done the same thing with AWS. But one of the things you can do instead is a dynamic inventory is just a Python script that um, returns a, a list of a JSON file, uh, a JavaScript serializable list of strings. Uh, whether that's a host name, connection strings, um, usernames and passwords, groups that it's in, things like that. And I suggested that what you could do is you could have it have the dynamic inventory script actually just pass the active directory and look for hosts in a particular part of the tree. One thing that I thought you could do as well, and this is something that I've done on my machine, is actually once you've finished provisioning a machine... I have, I've done in the past where you can call out to a web service. So you can call out to a web service to say something's changed. Uh, an Ansible Tower, AWX, I'll use the two terms interchangeably, AWX and Ansible Tower, they can actually have a webhook published so that once you've finished provisioning a machine, you can have a post-install provisioning activity, which is to call a webhook. 
So what you could do is once you've provisioned a machine, you can say to it, here's a webhook to go and touch. So you could potentially do something with that to actually provision your machines once they've come up. Okay. But that would be from the actual machine, from the actual VM itself? No, so that would be from Terraform. Okay. So in your Terraform script, you can have a local exec action or a remote exec action. Okay. Uh, So your local exec action could be to just do curl HTTP, you know, my.awx.server slash webhook slash blah, 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 question mark, hostname equals, and then the name to go and get. Okay. But I'd have thinking if Terraform would be able to do that because obviously my AWX is internally and and Devil is externally. Oh uh, yeah, I see what you mean. So mm, okay, well, I mean, again, it's about it's about having more pieces of the puzzle to answer about it. So yeah, that's def- that'd be that'd be quite good if we could do if we could do that. If we could do if we get a webhook. We could obviously then we could that'd be quite good. Yeah, I mean, the whole dynamic inventory thing with tags does sound potentially like it could be used because if you're using Terraform to, say, add to an OU, you could also add a tag that says what OU it's in as well, potentially. Um, Whether that exposes anything you don't want to, I don't know. But, you know, if it matches that, you can then just say, right, anything that has a tag of OU equals staging or whatever, um, then at that point, um, AWX would pick that up automatically without necessarily needing um, anything that talks it to Active Directory directly at that point point see options that's what you got <laughs> options that's always good as well i like to kind of <laughs> put this out there so i mentioned before about having some feedback we have a, a quite a strong sort of collection of listeners uh who join us in our telegram channel uh which you can find by going to the admin admin podcast.co.uk website and finding contact us and the link to the telegram group is there or you'll find it in our show notes as well as long as i remember to put them in i don't think i've forgotten for a while Uh anyway but one of our listeners uh wayne who's the uh one of the hosts on the the binary times podcast which is another fine podcast you should go and listen to he mentioned that sometimes we bandy around words like you're making tea now there's a phrase you've not heard before (laughs) And, and effectively, he's right. We've 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 talked about it in the past as well. Is that um, because we tend to live this stuff quite often? It's very easy to forget that not everyone is doing uh, the same tools, using the same tools, using the same terminology as us all the time. Um, so I'm certainly going to make much more of an effort to try and you know pause things, rewind things, and actually explain, you know, what the terms are that we've just used. Another thing that you will find is that quite often in the show notes, we try and go into, uh, I try and at least link to uh, products and services and stuff when we mention them in the podcast. So if you do hear something in the podcast that you don't necessarily understand, please do let us know. Uh, we'll do our best to go back and explain things. It might be a couple of couple of episodes later, but we do try our absolute best to uh to to make sure that what we're doing for you guys is actually useful and usable anyone want to say anything else about that before we move on to the next thing uh i'm just gonna say i'm i am very guilty of doing the same so yes i'm gonna try and make more of an effort to not uh to to not do that as much (laughs) wayne also provided a little bit of inspiration for our next thing that i wanted to talk about so wayne has recently rebuilt or is in the process of building a new personal machine and he didn't talk about it in, in our Telegram, which was very sad. He talked about it in here in the Binary Times, in a recent Binary Times podcast. And he said that 
he runs a Linux distribution called Ubuntu and he's on a quite an old release of it. I think it might even be something like 12 or 4 or 14 or 4. So it's either come to its end of its life or it's due to be coming to the end of its life relatively soon. And he said he's reluctant to upgrade it because he's done so much customization to this machine that he's he's afraid of breaking everything, uh, which frankly I can understand. My server machines, for example, they tend to uh, sit chugging along quite nicely for a few years without without really being touched very much, purely because I'm scared of touching them too. But one of the things that he did say was that um, he could hear uh, our producer, Dave, screaming at him to, to automate the rebuild of that machine so that he, he at least, whilst this first build might be problematic and troublesome, going forwards, his builds should be a lot easier and a lot, a lot less of a risk to him to do those rebuilds. And what I thought might be a good idea is actually to go through how how I at least, uh, but also uh, you guys as well, how how I would approach that that build. And as I mentioned, I'm doing some stuff with log.org.uk. We've got some web services that have been sitting there for probably about 10, 15 years that we provide to various Linux user groups around the UK. And I'm in the process of doing the same thing. I'm trying to reorganize, re-architect and rebuild uh, that solution. I've been trying to do that for about two years, but you know, personal life and family stuff get, kind of get keeps getting in the way. But what I personally tend to do is I will use a Vagrant virtual machine uh, as my starting point. So Vagrant is a piece of software that lets you very rapidly provision and deprovision virtual machines, typically on your local machine, but you can also use Vagrant to provision stuff on various cloud providers or in something like Docker or something like that. But I'm using it in the way it was originally built, which is just to provision a VirtualBox virtual machine. And I'm building it to the version of operating system that uh, I know that log.org.uk will be using, which in this case is Debian. So I've found the box file for that Debian build. And a box file is basically just an instruction to Vagrant to say, this is the virtual machine base uh, OS disk and a very thin layer of Vagrant configuration file that sits over the top of that. What I would then do is I would bring that virtual machine up and then make sure that Git is installed on it and do a Git init uh, on that path. So Git is a piece of version control software. So what that does is it records all the changes to the files in that file tree. And I would do a Git init on two paths. Uh, The first is on the etc directory. So any changes that happen to the etc directory will be recorded in this path, in this in the version control software. So Git will record all the, all the changes to the files in that path. And then I'll also do a git init on the home directory of the user. So that would be uh, slash home slash vagrant, because that's the standard user that vagrant files produce. So I've got these two parts that I'm now tracking uh, and I would install my first package. Sorry, so I'd do a git init, git add. So that adds all of the files that are in that git directory uh, to what they call the staging tree and then do a git commit. So what that does is that gives me almost like a, a baseline. That's the starting point for all of the files in slash etc and in slash home slash vagrant. So I've got this starting point. I then install the first package which will, by its very nature, drop a load of files all over the file system. Uh, but in part, that'll be in etc uh, and in home. Well, it won't be in home vagrant, but 
so it'll drop files in et slash etc. So I do a, um, a git add star in etc or git add dot rather, uh, and then git commit. Uh, and again, so that gives me a list of all the files that change between a basic install uh, of the OS and then the package that I've installed being added on the top. Anything that I've said so far sound crazy? Just checking. No, that sounds like a good way to me. And then once you've done this uh, install and conf- uh, and it's done a little bit of you know thin skinning of what's changed on the file system, you then, as the user, run the program, potentially making some changes to the config, close the application, git add those two paths again, uh, etc and slash home slash vagrant, git commit. So what you've now got is you've now got three states in your log file. And part of the reason why I've used git for this is that git will let, will let you look at the logs for each of those commits. So by doing git log minus p, it will show you all the things that have changed in that in that commit. So for example, when you installed that package, it might have dropped files into um, slash etc slash systemd slash system, for example, or it might have written a change to um, slash network or sorry, slash etc slash networks, or yeah, it could have dropped a new file in, in etc. But so you see all these, th- all these changes. And then when as a user, uh, you run the application and you make changes to the configuration, you can then see the differences between what was in it when you uh, installed the package in that config file, perhaps in etc, or perhaps in a config file in your home directory. And then the difference is after you finish making those changes. Now, the one downside to this is binary files. So uh, for example, if you're working on a Windows machine rather than a Linux machine, quite often applications in the Windows world don't write textual changes, they write binary changes and they'll write changes to the to the registry. So if you've, if you've built a, an environment in a Windows box, for example, you'd need to do a lot more of extracting these config changes into something else so you can at least see what the differences are. Linux does have the same thing in, I want to say, dconf yeah, so. or gconf. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think you're right on that one, but yeah, I'm starting to question myself now. So I do recall that gconf. So you can see that files have changed uh, with Git. So if you see that files in slash home slash vagrant slash dot gconf or dot dconf uh, have changed, what you can do is you can do a git checkout on a previous commit. So it effectively winds the history from that path back to before when you made your user config changes. And then you can do things like gconf get settings or something like that, or uh, dconf or whatever, whatever things need to change you can see those changes at that point. So once I've then got the list of all the things that have changed between each package that I've written, I've installed, or even just doing it one stage at a time, I would then start writing my Ansible playbook. So I'll typically always use Ansible for post-configuration of an operating system. You can do things with Salt, with Puppet, with Chef. Ansible is the tool that I tend to use. Salt is similar to Ansible in that it's still a Python-based provisioning tool. It's a little bit different. And Stu, you can probably speak more to the differences between Ansible and, and Salt than I can. 
Yeah, I suppose, suppose in that case, one of the issues you're going to find, especially if it's something like, you know, a desktop machine is um, Salt uses something called an agent, which means that um, you tend to have a central server that you talk to and then an always running agent that will be almost polling that server to find out if it if it's wanting it to change at any point. Whereas Ansible, um, it doesn't use an agent, which effectively means that it will just run potentially locally or just against a machine it doesn't need something already running on that machine to make any changes to it so yeah salt does have a bit of a disadvantage in um, something like that um yeah and that sort of vein so there's no reason why you couldn't do your post provisioning with salt so like Stu said salt's got an agent that it expects to see there there's also tools like puppet and chef which are very similar again they've just got different ways of defining what the changes are that are going to happen uh, and then how they persist those changes over time Oh, yeah. So I would then make my changes with Ansible and then I would then do a vagrant destroy, which kills the virtual machine, removes all the disks uh, and rem- erases them. And then a vagrant up to bring that machine back up again. And then I would apply my Ansible playbook against that machine. So you might want to re- to copy off all your, all your Git histories to a separate machine or something like that, uh, just so that you've got your context of what's changing between one release and the next. So you can then do Vagrant Up, Vagrant Down. So Vagrant Up, Vagrant Destroy, Vagrant Up, Vagrant Destroy. And it will just put you in a state where you can see what the differences are between each thing uh, and then fix them as you go along. Obviously, if you are expecting your changes to be around hardware pieces that you don't have in uh, your virtual machine. So for for example, if you've got something like an NVIDIA graphics card or if you've got a specific USB interface to your virtual machine, you'd need to look into how you would use some of the VirtualBox commands, if you're using Vagrant with VirtualBox, uh, to provide those hardware interfaces into your virtual machine. It's not impossible to do, particularly VirtualBox in Windows and Linux. You can get, well, what is it they call it? Is it the extensions? The extensions, yeah. yeah. The extensions are basically a set of drivers that provide you access to hardware so things like there's a USB driver, there's a remote desktop plugin as well, I think. So these are extensions. The extension that you get from virtualbox.org has a commercial license and a personal license. If you are using it as a personal user, you can get it for free. If you're using it as a commercial user, you must pay Oracle, who are the company that own VirtualBox, following a series of acquisitions. But so you pay Oracle money to get access to the VirtualBox extensions. But that would then give you your USB drivers. And with those USB drivers, you can get all the way up to USB 3.0, a USB 3.0 connectivity. And effectively, it's like having a USB bridge in your device that is attached to your virtual machine rather than to Windows. So yeah, so that's kind of how I would imagine doing a virtual machine build. Is there anything in there that you guys would do differently or how you'd approach things in a different way? I'm particularly looking at it from, you know, a build perspective rather than necessarily a, um, an architectural perspective, but anything that I've missed? Uh, no, it, it definitely sounds like a uh, more, what's the word? A more involved process than what I've been using. But to be honest, what I've used for 
I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, upgrading a desktop machine or something like that, then it's pretty much just list the packages that are installed on the old one, try and match them on the new one um, against what's already there with a brand new install of an operating system. I've got a script that will install my dot files. So, you know, things like my my shell config files and um, the basic packages I use and stuff like that. But for the most part, that's, that's not even close to the coverage that you'd get from uh, your method, to say the least. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, the, I think the main reason why I approached it the way that I did is that I've gone through a couple of builds where serious underlying structural changes have occurred. And what I want to do is compare what happens on the OS that I'm currently on when I do those package changes to what happens when I do the same build in a later release. I know that with a desktop image, so that I've not found an Ubuntu desktop virtual machine image uh, that is just as easy to build with, uh, you know, Vagrant. Uh, so I would be starting from an Ubuntu server install and then building it up from there, which is not really a desktop environment. Not really. There is the desktopify package that Martin Wimpress recently created uh, for Raspberry Pi that, you know, gives you something similar to a desktop experience. Um, but obviously it's not, it's not exactly a one for one match. But yes, it's a, it's one way of doing things. And I hope sincerely that that helps Wayne if that's a route that he decides to go down. If not the route that Stu mentioned, which was literally just, you know, get your load of packages, get your config files and then apply one, one to t'other and see what happens. In most cases, it will be as good a solution. The only downside, as I said, is that you won't see what the configuration changes are between one version and the next. Yeah, to, to be honest, I, I prefer your old methods, just I've never got around to actually fixing mine at any point. Mine's been around for a couple of years and I just need to make it better at some point. It, it's still a bash script that I apply half of my um, uh, shell changes and things like that anyway. I do need to convert that to Ansible at some point, so yeah. Fair enough. Al, have you ever done anything similar but in the Windows world? Not really. I mean, that's what I'm kind of really, that's what my current job is at the moment is just there because there's just been such a, a loss of internal knowledge since people leaving where we're because obviously I'm quite a fresh start of the, the people in our team. So we are basically just trying to reverse engineer everything at the moment under just looking at different places, really. I mean, registry is such big, you can't really. Because applications just write to so many different places, not a lot of things you can do to have a look at the registry. Um, I mean, I had a problem the other week where I was trying to work out we had a TLS issue, but it wasn't actually a TLS issue. And I was like in the depths of the registry looking between different boxes. There, and there's not a lot you can do, really. I mean, in Windows world, I mean, it's, it's just looking at what feature sets install. So you can basically pull what features are installed on the machine. So you can use Ansible to pull that back. Um, like if it's got an IIS role in it and what IIS settings are in there. And then you've got things like looking in the control panel, looking at what software is installed. But no, not really. Would you not consider doing something like exporting the registry using something like RegEdit? No, because it's such big and it does, it does, it does vary from machine to machine. And I just have never found anything constantly to... Um, do it. And I suppose people don't, say don't really mess about the registry, really, because you can fork your machine very badly if you import and export the registry i suppose what one thing that might be worth looking at potentially is things like chocolatey for package management on windows i've done a little bit with that but yeah it's you know if you're going to be using it almost again almost if you're using it as a desktop user probably not as much as a server 
again, it's potentially whether you trust Chocolatey as a package manager or not. I know they have um, an enterprise solution for that now, but I've used it a little for preparing some Windows machines for our AWS environment, and it's just, you know, adding things like our um, our monitoring agents and stuff like that, rather than having to go through the process of transferring EXE files or um, similar things. It will actually just install it directly from the Chocolatey package manager, which is quite nice. The other thing that I've found as well with Chocolatey is there's a, a thing called Box Starter, and Box Starter is effectively a superset of the Chocolatey set of functions but it'll let you do things like if you go to boxstarter.org slash package slash and then the package name it actually gives you a one-click windows install for that chocolatey package yeah. and you can do chocolatey so boxstarter.org slash package slash url question mark https colon slash slash github gist.github.com slash you know abc123 decaf bad whatever um and it'll actually download a raw gist file and run all the chocolatey commands from a gist which is quite nice yeah the lab that i used to run had a load of stuff like that in there particularly for doing windows installs but actually that's a good point one of the things that i did recently was do stand up a proof concept environment for windows and linux where we needed to demo a handful of windows machines being attached to an active directory domain and i actually did the Active Directory joins using Terraform. Sorry, using the user data part of the provisioning. And one of the things that I found is that because Windows does reboots, a lot of reboots, you have to do quite a few interesting... uh, How to describe it? You have to do a few interesting things to allow Windows to do those reboots. So say, for example, when you join a machine to AD, for example, you have to reboot at that point. If you change the machine name, you have to reboot at that point. And I actually found a script uh, that talks through how to do that, sort of that multi-reboot set of scripts with the user data file. So I'll include that. I'll include a link to um, how I did that in the show notes because it's a bit complicated, but ultimately involves you writing a value to registry uh, and having that your user data script being executed on every reboot, which is fun. Interesting. (laughs) But it worked. In the pre-show, Al was talking to us about some of the stuff that he's trying to do at the moment with programming. So, as in DevOps is the word, I'm trying to get the more development side of things. Um, and yeah, just trying to looking at ASP.net and understanding a bit more about looking at the developer's code so I understand it more. So I wanted to kind of talk about what, because I think ASP.net, is basically written or .NET Core is run is written in uh, C sharp and it's just and I was just kind of weren't understanding kind of the way the different types of programming languages kind of hang together. Um, I understand is it object orientating programming language OOP is that correct? It was just completely said that wrong. No, that's that's perfect. So object orientated programming is a programming methodology. Most of the histories that I've seen of it seem to it tends to be from where programmers have previously developed in java and then have moved to other programming languages at least that's my experience of it i might be wrong i think object orientated programming languages have existed before java but that tends to be where a lot of the current programming legacy comes from when it comes to object orientated there's lots of different 
ways of doing object orientated. Now I've never done C sharp and I've never done, I've done very, very, very little VB.net. So what sorts of things are you looking to find out about object orientated programming? Just how it kind of hangs together, really. Just because I mean, I've just been in before the old uh, when it used to be at the ASP, well, before even .NET, so the original like Windows 2000. It literally just you wrote a script and it basically just kind of just went down that script and just run it, just just going like doing it, the looking at the ifs and the ands and the kind of things. So I just kind of understand that compared to what you'd kind of using the ROP and like that and when and it was like PHP kind of thing, really, just kind of a, a brief overview, really. I got. I first started my exposure to PHP, uh, to object-oriented programming in PHP. So again, some of the things that I'm saying might be PHP-isms rather than object-oriented programming-isms. But in, I think they call it functional programming, which, no, not functional programming, that's a completely different thing. Procedural programming, that's what it is. In procedural programming, which is what you will have been used to in ASP, you'll have a series of functions uh, that you define in your code. Uh, so you might have things like, you know, read name, say hello, help, things like that, that you've got functions, explicit functions, and they'll take a set of parameters and then your main script will call out to those functions. Uh, and again, Stu, if you hear me saying anything in this lot that seems wildly wrong, <laughs> shout and yep, tell me wrong. And you'll see the same sort of thing in things like bash programming, stuff like that. And PHP pre-PHP 5, really, is where you'll see this in PHP, for example. And as you said, ASP Classic rather than ASP.net. And uh, VBA, Visual Basic Applications, VBA. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it stands for, which you'll find in uh, macros in Microsoft Office. Yeah, Microsoft Office. So Word, Excel, Access, things like that. You'll have macros in there. They're all doing functional programming as well. In this functional programming way of looking at things, you'll have your functions and then you'll have a script that calls those functions. And so your script steps through and executes based on parameters it hands between itself. With object-oriented programming, what you tend to have is at some point, so you'll define what they call classes. You'll have inherited classes. So, for example, you might have a class which is the two. The two typical ones are animals and cars, and both of them are flawed because when you start going down a route too far, the 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 metaphor breaks down. But I'll use them anyway. You might have a class called animal, and then you'll inherit from that class animal a class mammal. And so far, these are just kind of templates. But then you might have a class which is a dog, which is of class mammal, which is of class animal, for example. And a dog class might have things like bark, uh, sniff, and rollover, for sake of argument. You might then want to have a separate class called cat. And a cat, while it might do rollover, it's less it it's possibly going to do sniff but it's unlikely to do bark so what you might have is you might have a separate class uh, so it'll be another class derived from mammal but you'll have to have your functions of you know bark that's uh, not bark um you know you'll have a function called meow for example and a function called 
sniff and one called rollover. The fun thing for me about object orientated at that point is that you can create as an object this templated thing, this dog, for example, or this cat. So you'd say, and this is in PHP, you do, you know, dollar, uh, which means variable spot equals new dog. And that then says that there's a, a, a variable called spot that contains an object of type dog. And then what you do is you say dollar spot and then a hyphen or a a line or a minus symbol uh, and then a carrot basically to make it look like an arrow and that says call this function so you'll then say dollar spot call the function of I don't know name and then you'll put your brackets around it and you'll say spot if you then create another instance of a dog called rover so dollar rover equals new dog in the functional programming world you'd have to store the state for that that object outside of that 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 set of functions and you'd have to pass all of the state that was related to that that object into it in one go so you'd in, in if you were doing it as a functional you might say dollar spot equals can't even think how you do it with functional program but you'd say you know dollars oh yeah dollar spot and then equals array open brackets type equals dog comma name equals spot comma allowed functions equals blah 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 and then you'd have to then pass that spot value into whatever functions you then called so it could then work out whether it can run all these functions in that that object the other thing that you can do is you can derive one object from another object I kind of get the idea that you just basically break all your functions out on you so you can then call them when you when you need them is that right uh, but it, it's about having the whole everything to do with that object in one lump so you have a series of variables that are attached to that object so you'd have name you might have age you might have you know um uh, breed and i mean again this is all talking about dogs in this case but you know one of the websites that i was involved with uh, was cchits.net and so um, when you get an object of type track, you get the track name, you get the URL for the, you get the location of the track, uh, you get the artist, you get a link to the artist object and things like that. So I can pass around these track objects without having to do lots of database calls because it's all stored as an object in the code. But equally, you could write some code that says something along the lines of, when you create this object, don't go away and ask for all these things because I don't need them at this point. And then at a later point, you can say, oh, I don't need them now. Can you go and retrieve them for me? Or only retrieve them when you go to ask for them and they've not been cached already, for example. There's a couple of other terms that you'll tend to come across when it comes to object-orientated programming. So you've got inherited in PHP, you have a thing called implements, and that is where it's got, uh, no, it's been a while since I've done this, but it's an abstract. An abstract class is one that defines all the things that are in a class that you want to use as a template, but you can never actually instantiate an object of that type. So for example, when I said before about having a track object in CC hits, uh, that was an abstract of a database record class. 
So that database record class had some code in it that would let you, you could call a function on that object to say, update yourself or delete yourself or create yourself. So there's an abstract and you can, you can implement that abstract in another class. No, it's good. It all makes sense. It's just what I wanted to kind of understand that. And that's what I thought it was. So there's two other things that object orientated programming does that I'm aware of. One, which is what they call a factory object. A factory object is one that creates something else. So if you wanted to create six dog objects, for example, you would call your factory to create a dog object for you. And you might say it it can then apply certain criteria to each of those objects. So we said one was called Rex, one was called Spot, and one was called Rover, and one was called, you know, Fluffy or whatever. You could use your factory object to create those objects for you, passing in a set of standard values. So it's almost like a function that calls objects and returns them to you. The other term that you might see is a singleton. So a good thing about object-oriented programming, as I said, is that you get uh, the ability to create lots of these objects. But if the object that you're trying to create is a connection to a database, for example, you only want one connection to that database. Or if you've got a way of caching data, uh, so you're not calling out to a database, for example, what you might do is you might have what they call a singleton. So you would call the singleton and the first time it's called, it creates itself. But the second time it's called, it knows it's already been created. So it doesn't rerun all the, all the creation activities. And in PHP, the way that you would do that is normally what you'd just say is, you know, dollar sum variable equals new and then the object. In this case, what you'd do is you'd say uh, dollar sum variable equals object colon start or object colon find or something like that. And what it does is it actually, by calling it that way, it allows that function to either create a singleton and return it or to invoke the previously created singleton and return it. And the keyword that it uses for that is static. Now, there's a problem with static uh, inheritance, which is that you can't inherit static because a static object is basically is how you get that colon function state. Final means there. Is, this is the last type of that object. So, for example, you couldn't have a MySQL database singleton and a Postgres database singleton inherited from a final database singleton. You could only have a final MySQL singleton inheriting from a database singleton. It gets a bit complicated at that point. Those are some of the terms you'll see. If you're looking to get into object-oriented programming, it's great. It can solve a whole set of classes problems, but your code has to be over a certain size to make it worth its while. A lot of early PHP stuff, and this is particularly the reason why even now you'll tend to see a lot of PHP code written, particularly, I mean, particularly in old blog posts, but um, referring to how to do things in this old way of functional programming. So it's, you know, create a function and call it not functional programming. Procedural, thank you, Zad. Yeah, procedural. This procedural method where you start at the top and you work your way down through the code. Object-orientated PHP, at least, tends to be what 
a lot of the frameworks are based on. Part of the reason why a lot of the frameworks are based on object-oriented programming is that when you call an object that you haven't previously called that type of thing before, you can dynamically include the files. And again, this is probably a PHP thing rather than anything else, but you can dynamically include the files at that point at which you call out to it, which means you don't have to have all of your code included every single time you run it. You can just say, run this thing. And by the way, if you come across a thing that calls out to an objective type dog, can you go and ask for the dog stuff? When you get to the object of dog stuff, it says, oh, by the way, this is, an, this is a mammal. So you need the mammal stuff as well. Oh, and if it's a mammal, then you also need the animal type as well. Does that make sense? Kind of like a dynamic includes kind of approach. Yes. Yeah, I, I've used a little bit of object-oriented programming in um, Python. It's been a couple of years since I've done it now, so I'm probably not even going to remember the exact terms anyway. But what I used it for was um, creating a network backup script, and this was before Ans- the Ansible for networking stuff had properly kicked off. If it had been around, then I'd probably never created it in the first place. But it was for things like, at the time in Python, you had a few libraries that would be able to connect over SSH to um, certain uh, networking devices. There was one called NetMiko, which had a lot of native, um, sort of like, it would know how to connect to a Cisco router. It would know what kind of commands would get it into the configuration mode so you can start applying configuration statements to it. It would know the time it would take for um, a configuration file, if you're trying to view all of it, to complete um, whereas it didn't cover every operating system. So, for example, at a place I worked at a few years ago, we used something called HP Tipping Point, which is um, a firewall vendor, and I think they've been sold on about three times since. But they, with that one, it didn't have anything native for it, so you may have to use a different library to connect to it. What I used the classes for was to say... Um, create a function that's quite generic to say I want to have a backup of the configuration for a networking device and then I will feed in from a database just um, a host name and also the type that it is and that type would then um, relate to a class that was in this Python script and in that you'd have your which library you'd use connect it. So whether it be NetMiko, as I say, which is one of the main networking ones at the time, there's Paramiko, which did native SSH, but you had to manage um, terminal types. You had to manage what you'd expect back from the terminal. And some of them didn't even understand SSH. It was just pure Telnet. So it would tell you which libraries to use. It also tell you which command to get the um, configuration back and things like that. So it meant that my generic function that just said get... Um, get config and then once config has been returned commit it to a git repository or something like that after that doesn't really matter what it did after it meant that i could make the function very generic but make the class have actually the complexity of saying these are what you're going to use these are the potential timeouts these are the operating system you might find these are you know it just meant that it was very easy to template certain kinds of networking gear without actually creating separate functions for every single piece of gear it was going to uh, come up against and it made it quite Quite, uh, quite useful at that stage. So the one other thing that I used it for with PHP was in that you can make a database request return an object. So again, I used this with, P- with CC Hits, but also with Campfire Manager, which was the talk scheduling software that we used for odd camps, a few of the odd camps. We don't use it anymore for various reasons. 
but Campfire Manager and CC Hits both would return objects of the class that related to the database table. So a track from the track database table would return a track object, which meant it had all the data objects associated to it. But because it was derived from the track object, you could encode certain activities based around that track. So for example, if you wanted to say that this track was then used in a show, or if you wanted to say that uh, a talk had been moved to a particular slot, it was just a matter of requesting the the track or the um, talk entry from the database and then calling a function that had been predefined for that object against it. It's not to say there weren't other ways we could have written that, but that was kind of quite useful thing about object-oriented programming. And it was part of the reason why I got quite into using object-oriented programming at the time. Yeah, I think for me, I was quite early into Python. People kept on saying you need to start using classes, almost use it as a test bed for doing it. And it's it seemed to actually work quite well. So, Oh, it will do. It's, uh, I mean, what you've just described there was a perfect use case for it as well. So, But so I think that's probably answered your question, Al. Thank you very much. So, yeah, I need a project to kind of to start on really to because I always find it's easier if you've got something to solve it's a lot more easy to just try and sit down and learn a programming language isn't it if you've got some sort of you've got a solution you're trying to solve yes a problem you're trying to solve that, that was it, exactly the reason for creating that Python script I'd mm-hmm. I'd dabbled with Python uh, quite a lot over the years before that but I never actually really put put any proper effort into it it was just kind of I could do little bits in it but not nothing particularly special and then the place that I worked at we didn't have anything like Rancid or anything similar for network backups. And um, the solution we had at the time was something built into SolarWinds. And unfortunately, the version we were on um, would send you the old um, configuration of the network and, uh, well, sorry, of the networking device and the new one, not showing the difference between them. It sent you the full one, which meant, and it sent you every single one on your network. So when you've got a two meg email quota and every email that comes through to tell you the network changes is 85 meg, we never got the emails. So at that point, I just went, right, okay, we need something. So I'll just actually start trying to build this. And over the space of a couple of months, I actually got something working. And it was at that point that I actually started to take Python quite seriously. But yeah, without that, I'm not even sure I would have picked up Python that well at the time. So yeah, and then, yeah, kind of fell in love with Python. Haven't really left it since. So there you go. Nice, cool. Well, with that, I think I think we're probably at the end of the show. Sounds good to me. So I've got a lot of things going in the research now, so I can get started next week on that. So yeah, and I'll keep you updated. So yeah, yeah, I think we're time to wrap up. Uh, yeah, just to say that uh, Dave does our audio production and does a wonderful job on that. And um, we are now proud members of the Other Side Podcast Network. So if you want to see OtherSide.network for more details on that. We also have a Patreon page, which you can find through our um, website, which is at admin, adminpodcast.co.uk. And uh, we'd like to thank our patrons, who are Stuart, Andamo, Maha, Andy, Mike, Yannick, and Dave. As mentioned, we do have uh, a Telegram group, uh, which you can find through our show notes and also on the website. Uh, and if you've got some feedback that you want to send us, perhaps uh, we said something completely wrong or stupid <laughs> in the thing about building a virtual machine, or if we said something wrong or stupid in the talk about, well, pretty much anything that we've covered in any of our shows, really, uh, please contact mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk. Or again, you'll find other routes to uh, reach us in the website, in the contact us page. 
Yes. Okay, I think that's about it, isn't it? So um, we'll um, say bye for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. See you again soon. Bye-bye. listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more about our shows at otherside.network.